Mark Champion and his team cup their ears and squint into the scrubland, trying to discern a certain call amongst the chorus of birdsong that thickens the air. I'm at Wigan Flash's nature reserve to find out how Greater Manchester is trying to save the endangered willow tip. This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris with Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill, Manchester's quality newspaper, delivered direct to your inbox via email. Yoshi, hi. Hi, joining you from the newsroom. Oh, I like it. I like it. And this week, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge uh, have been nearby you, actually, in your newsroom in uh, in Manchester. They were up in the Glade of Lights, the new memorial uh, in the centre of town to the Manchester Arena attack victims. Meanwhile, in Westminster, Martin's Law was being proposed in the Queen's speech. This is a law, Yoshi, isn't it? We'll talk about this in more detail in a little bit, but this is really significant. Um, a law named after Martin Hett, who lost his life in the Manchester Arena attack. Yeah, based on a lot of campaigning by Martin's mother, Figan Murray, who has basically made herself a an expert on terrorism safety and, and all the issues surrounding that. So the fact that this is now going through Parliament is a big victory for her. OK, we'll also uh, find out more about Jack's story, as we had a little preview of there, meeting the bird conservationists of Wigan. Really interested in that. Firstly, Yoshi, let's get into the briefing proper, shall we, and have a look at what's going on around Greater Manchester. Uh, we'll come to a story we, we were talking about this last week. Buses, very much high up on the agenda, locally in Greater Manchester, and then there's been a development to the story we were talking about last week. Bit of a setback, I think, for Andy Burnham's attempts to bring buses back under local control, as it's called. Andy Burnham chose a franchising model for Greater Manchester's buses, which would effectively give the Greater Manchester Combined Authority much more control over the routes and the fares and that kind of thing. We've talked about that before. A judge basically gave that decision the green light earlier this year by saying that it had been legally come to, i.e. all this sort of legal finagling about how you make the decision to refranchise the buses and to bring them back under local control, that that process was gone through correctly. Now what's happened is one of the bus operators, Rotala, has won the right to appeal against that judgment. So this is really them saying the process by which Andy Burnham chose to introduce a franchising system wasn't as robust as the combined authority says. They've apparently taken issue with the number of aspects of the consultation process. So the process by which people were asked, what sort of bus process um, system do you want? I won't bore you with too much detail, but I've read some of these massive consultation documents and, and the reports that they created afterwards, and they are insane in their level of detail, polling members of the public, doing lots of complex maths about how many people ride this type of bus, how what proportion of bus riders, you know, ride regularly, which don't. They've even done like surveys on like which proportion of people who currently drive cars could be persuaded to get, get on buses and which couldn't. I'm, I'm probably am boring you, but the point is this was a really, really involved and complex process. And this company, this operator has got the right to appeal against how that process worked. The appeal is going to be held this summer and we'll have to see how it goes. Okay, no, that is, I mean, it is, no, it is interesting. I was going to say, I was going to say it's boring and interesting, but it's not, it's just interesting. I think uh, The Week magazine used to have a column called Boring But Important, and I think we can firmly put the whole bus thing in the, in the, in the Boring But Important box. <laughs> very much so, very, very much so. And uh, we'll keep an eye on it, we'll come back, because that is going to be really, I mean, it's central to, it's really central to Andy Burnham's 
second term as the mayor of Greater Manchester, isn't it? So it'll be interesting to see in which direction that goes. Okay, to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge then, who were in Manchester and Martin's Law, as I said, as yesterday, as the glade of light was opening in Parliament, Martin's Law was being proposed in the Queen's speech. This is years and years of tireless work, isn't it, Yoshi, that's got us to this point. What is Martin's Law? Martin's Law, officially, I think it's the Protect Duty Bill. If it goes into law, and it still needs to go through Parliament, but it's now on the government's agenda officially, it would effectively mean that venues have a duty to devise specific security plans for terrorism, so for a terror attack. Because what's been found since the Manchester Arena bombing is that a lot of venues are offered free advice by the counter-terrorism advisors or the counter-terror cops and they actually don't properly take it, i.e. they don't then go away and devise proper plans. I think Fegan Murray, who is Martin Hett's mother, she went to a venue a few years ago, I think in Salford, and they didn't check her bag, for example. And that just showed that, like, public and private venues are effectively just coming up with their own plans. Some of them have good plans for a terror attack, some don't. And what this would do is it would regularise it, it would offer free advice um, to all of them that they then actually have to act on. There are lots of other interesting details in there which will will come out as it goes through Parliament. Um, Fegan Murray is a really interesting follow on Twitter um, because she she tweets about a lot of these issues. She actually took a degree in some of this counter-terror stuff. So big victory for her. Remarkable human being she is. Also, I spoke to uh, Nick Aldworth a little earlier today, actually, as it happens. Uh, He is the former chief of counter-terror in the United Kingdom. And uh, he was saying that, you know, he's been really heavily involved in in pushing for Martin's Law as well, working with Fegan on this. I mean, he couldn't have um, he couldn't have gushed about her anymore, and rightly so. And he was saying that, you know, another another development is these packs that he's been working on that provide assistance that sort of help you with uh, stem blood loss, for example, and sort of deal with physical trauma in the event of something like the Manchester Arena attack being placed in venues around the country or, you know, big, you know, places where this sort of thing uh, is susceptible to happening, I suppose. And he was saying that that wouldn't have happened if the Manchester Arena attack hadn't happened. And so, you know, when we sort of look back at the legacy of that awful, awful event in Manchester, we can draw some comfort from that. He was also, by the way, speaking to me from an airport where he was on his way to Ukraine to take some of these packs out to Ukraine, a place where obviously people are experiencing trauma on a daily basis. He's an astonishing guy. I also spoke to, and just another point as well, by the way, I spoke to, uh, to Fegan a year ago on the anniversary. This is the last time that I spoke to her. And she was, um, I asked her about, you know, whether these sort of developments in things, developments in Martin's Law, the progression of the inquiry, you know, whether they make life any easier for her and whether they sort of, you know, make it any easier for her coming to terms with the grief that she feels. And she said that she comes downstairs every morning into the living room and she opens the curtains and there's a picture on her sideboard of Martin. And she hasn't been able to look that picture directly look at it directly since the 22nd of May 2017 and um, and she said that she still hasn't yet she said one day maybe she will but these these developments haven't led her to that yet and that'll be a big point for her quite something and the anniversary is later this month isn't it the five-year anniversary yeah 22nd of May for sure we'll talk about that I'm sure around the time um okay elsewhere Yoshi another difficult story this one it feels a little bit like we've been talking about a warehouse project death inquest recently enough and here we are again 
24-year-old Kyle Bolton this one's about. He died in the early hours of April the 10th, so yeah, just just over a month ago. We haven't had the proper inquest so far. We've just had the sort of opening of it and then it gets adjourned to a later date. That's a normal uh, procedure. But yeah, it does feel like very recently we were talking about a different one. That was James Diss, who's a 20-year-old um, DJ. He died after collapsing um, at the Warehouse Project. That was last September that he died, but the inquest was, it feels like it was about a month ago, and Jack Delhanty wrote a really sensitive and powerful piece for, for the mill about that. So we'll look, we're going to cover this one as well. I mean, obviously, you know, so many people go to the Warehouse Project. Hundreds of thousands of people go every year. So you would expect, given that a lot of people who go to those kind of events are taking drugs, you would expect there to be hospitalizations, and I guess you would expect there to be deaths, but it doesn't reduce the kind of sadness of it. And, it, you know, when Jack goes along to these inquests and, you know, there's just like one or two representatives from the family there or they're joining over Zoom and... I don't know. It's it, on a on a statistical level, it, it's not that surprising that this particular event, with such an enormous footfall and the, the kind of events they are, it's not that surprising that you get deaths. But it's um, yeah, it's very sad that, to have another one. Yeah, for sure. Not easy at all. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it, though. We'll come back to it as uh, as Jack monitors that inquest. And elsewhere this week, Yoshi, Sakir Starmer cannot flirt the prospect of resigning, as noble as it may be intended, without people speculating about who could come next. And that has kicked up uh, a gear, hasn't it? And actually, Greater Manchester features very heavily on the, candidate, the sort of next in-line candidates list, doesn't it? Yeah, we said in our Monday briefing that if Keir Starmer does have to quit, uh, whether it's now or later, it's probably um, Greater Manchester that will be supplying the next leader of the Labour Party because you've got Lisa Nandy, who would be a big favourite. She has this whole agenda around towns, being from the Lee slash Wigan neck of the woods, this whole idea that it is towns that have been left behind. It's those kind of places, leave voting areas that have Labour has hemorrhaged votes to the Conservatives and they have also been kind of overlooked in the in the economic story of the, of the country in, in favour of cities. So that was her big pitch last time. Whether or not you think that's like economically literate or not, that was her big pitch. And I think she's really popular. And when she was asked about the leadership this weekend on Sky, she did kind of give a bit of an answer that sounded like a leadership pitch. So that's her. Then there's obviously Angela Rayner, who, you know, a lot of our readers and, 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 and members down in Tameside and Oldham and that neck of the woods are familiar with. Um, you know, from her background, obviously she's now a really big national figure, deputy leader of the Labour Party, should be a very strong candidate. And then obviously Burnham, I mean, Burnham's name was trending on Twitter, even though technically at the moment he couldn't run because he's not an MP. He's also said many times that he will not cut short his second term as mayor of Greater Manchester. So he'd have to break that promise. One thing we did report on our Monday briefing, which I just heard on the grapevine at some point was that if he was going to go back to Westminster his favoured route would be to go via the Makerfield constituency apparently the MP there the Labour MP who's who's in her 60s she would be apparently willing to to step aside or, or at least to time her resignation in a way that would um, allow him to to go in and take that seat so uh, that's not something we've sort of confirmed or had from Andy Burnham or anything but that's 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 the word on the street and that would be one way of him getting back into parliament could he get back into parliament quick enough to to take part in a in a leadership election prompted by Beergate probably not i don't think it's absolutely impossible but i think it's a it's a very unlikely uh, situation but if labor was to lose the next election and need another leader then yeah that that, that could be more interesting 
Yeah, very fascinating. And actually, we got I, I did a phone in this weekend about this, and I tell you what, I got a lot of calls about Angela Rayner. You know, people were kind of like from all sides of the political spectrum suggesting that she'd be a very good Labour Party leader. Although there's the obvious slight can slight issue for Angela Rayner at this juncture that she would ha- also have to resign, as also committed to resigning because yeah. of Beer Gate. So, so Beer Gate might take her out as well. Yeah, take the both of them out. Yeah, um, but she, yeah, she's she's really like established herself. I think during party gate because i think she what, what she's been able to do is articulate the anger that a lot of normal voters feel about it the her, the way she attacked boris over party gate was like it felt quite authentic and it felt just like she was using the kind of phrases and language that regular voters um w- would be using and i think that's really helped her uh, she's done really well in the house of commons at the dispatch box against boris johnson mm-hmm. so that's really helped her she's got an amazing story i mean she was a carer um she she came up via via you know a route that very few people i think in the in a very professionalized politics now she's not a member of the sort of political class didn't go to uni didn't go off and study at oxbridge and, and go the normal route so you know w- w- the mill should actually do a proper thing on her at some point it's quite an extraordinary story whether or not you like you like her or her politics it's an amazing story yeah it is for sure okay yoshi for now thank you This time last year, the Mills Jack Dalhanty visited the wide reaches of Wigan Flashes, a reserve where Dr. Mark Champion is trying to keep the willow tit alive. Last week, he returned to see Mark at his work, and Jack joins us on the Manchester Weekly now. Hi, Jack. Hello, you okay? Very well. Take us there, my friend, the Wigan Flashes. Yep, the Wigan Flashes are like a local nature reserve in Wigan, obviously. Really quite a big reserve formed of flashes. So flashes are kind of like these big bodies of water that were created from basically mining substance so that the floor basically sinking in from mines being dug under something and then being flooded to create giant large bodies of water called flashes. So it's a post-industrial local nature reserve which is quite a common thing in greater manchester because of how much of the ground has basically been like industrially exploited and these people like mark champion basically try and manage the land and conserve the species that do best in that kind of habitat we'll talk about the willow in a sec in more detail is it um is it generally alive is the ecosystem like thriving is there lots of stuff there Yes, it's a very biodiverse situation. It's the whole thing that you you know, like brownfield sites, which are often brought up if you read in, read about ecology, which I don't a lot, but when I did, <laughs> there was um, a whole thing that often you'll find a brownfield site which looks almost just like some disused place where a building used to be, will be more biodiverse than a mature woodland, which has been there for like hundreds of years. So it's a very, it's a little quirk of nature. When it reclaims something, it becomes a lot more vibrant and a lot more uh, lively there. That's interesting because you first wrote about these willow tits a year ago. That was your first mill piece. That's in yeah. fact, I think that's the first time I'd ever heard from you, I think, when you emailed that over. Mm. And you wrote it, I think, originally for your uni dissertation, didn't you? So yeah. tell us how you got into it and, and why we should care about the willow tits, why, why, why we do care about them. Uh, it's funny, well, my dad is a bird watcher, like a real amateur one. So he's kind of in and out with it. And he always goes to flashes around Pennington. Uh, he goes to Astley Moss and that sort of thing. So when I was trying to think of a project to do for my university assignment, I was like, I want to just find a kind of odd group 
not to call them hard, but you know what I mean. So I joined the Greater Manchester Birding Forum and started just chatting to people on there about birds, pretending I knew what they were talking about while Googling with one hand and started to talk to more and more people about this com- in, in this community. And one guy I spoke to mentioned Mark Champion because he was like, he's the guy who's going to actually, he's, a, he's like the forefront in the area for saving this bird. And the willow tit is basically this really tiny bird that, funnily enough, kind of looks like another bird called a marsh tit, and they're always kind of like confused. And their sort of population just dropped at the turn of the century. And a lot of that to do is with the habitat that they most like, which is called scrubland, basically being destroyed and redeveloped. And what Mark Champion and people like him do, these land managers, is try and almost freeze a habitat in this sort of stage that the willow tit likes it. So it likes quite young woodland. So it's basically like bundles of scrub, trees that aren't quite so tall yet and can still be soft. And it's obsessed with this thing called white rot, which makes trees a lot softer um, because it only has a tiny beak to excavate a nest. It's a whole thing. Anyway, they try and hold it in this successional stage it's called where it's still a young woodland and the bird can still thrive because if the woodland grows too high and too strong it can't compete with the bigger birds that can excavate nests in more mature harder wood the reason that you should care about it i suppose is the same reason you should care about anything going extinct because when it goes extinct you'll never see it again and that's a tragedy and that's kind of his whole thing is i mean it's also, I suppose, I don't want to be like, you know, Manchester, Manchester, but the Willow Tit... I mean, the, the podcast called the Manchester. <laughs> yeah, I know. So but I mean, like... The, it's a safe space for that, I think, The, the Willow Tit <laughs> is a bird that survives in a, in a certain landscape that just so happens to be the landscape that post-industrial landscapes upkeep. So it's kind of like, I don't want to call it heritage because that sounds really annoying, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, totally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Who is Mark? Tell me about Mark. What's his story? Mark isn't from Manchester. If I remember correctly, he's from Sussex and he's a doctor of ecology and he's worked for the national trust for about 30 years another, gr- another great sussex import into manchester <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the one making uh, waves as always yeah he's been at it for a very long time i don't want to give the impression i know we're obviously saying that like he's looking after the world at it and he is but he does a lot of other things as well so he, he manages the flashes what kind of health is the willow tit population in the start of the century, that's where it was plunging. And then these sorts of people, conservationists, land managers, started to do the work to try and stabilise it. And we're at a point now where it's stabilised. And the next step is to help it recover. So they're not losing as many as they used to. In, in fact, when I was speaking to Mark the other day, he was saying it's broadly been stable now for like five, ten years. So the amount is staying the same. We're just not... We're sustaining the population in that we're keeping it at a level. But what we want to do is grow it because it's still very low. It's like Labour's vote at the last election, isn't it? It's like, yeah, they've maintained, yeah, fine. Is that good enough? No, they want to improve. They want more seats. <laughs> it's, the same with the, it's the same with the Willisets. Strong analogy. Final thing on, on the Willisets, Jack. The cool thing about your story is that they are hoping to link up loads of these habitats because you said the birds often just stay in their one little habitat they don't like crossing habitats that aren't suitable for them yeah but there's this big plan to effectively create a national reserve by linking up various different habitats near Wigan flashes i know it hasn't been given the go-ahead yet officially but they're really hoping for it tell us about that briefly i mean that's an interesting thing generally so one of the things that mark's been trying to do and people who are interested in conserving willow have tried to 
do, are creating um, corridors to connect areas where they know willow tits are. But because willow tits won't travel via a habitat that they don't feel is viable for them to survive in, it's a bit of an odd one. It's like a, mm. I don't know how to describe it. But creating these habitats means that these sort of spatially separated willow tit populations can meet may grow population but if they connected every flash in Wigan it'd be a huge national nature reserve I think it'd also be the only national nature reserve in Greater Manchester the nearest ones are either in Cheshire or Lancashire so that would be in itself kind of a milestone you've been with the mill then so this this will mark a year Jack since your first piece that you wrote for the mill yeah for in fact literally, literally the 12th of May yeah the exact same day we published exactly. it yeah. uh, which is so happy one year anniversary of writing for the mill thank you in that year since you arrived any sort of like particular highlights favourites uh, yeah I mean there's been loads of really nice things to write about I really enjoyed one. it was actually the story that I did straight after the Willow Tit one was one that I would have been working on for a few months beforehand was spending a night with security workers the night that Manchester reopened so I did a door shift with a bunch of doormen and I interviewed them in the weeks before about all the troubles that the industry was having and I found that really interesting and really insightful and I was able to sort of reconnect with a guy who I from years ago who used to be a doorman and interview him again about what it used to be like in the 90s how it's changed so that was really cool profiling Stanley Chow was nice he was really really lovely and really interesting even though it was an absolute slog to get it written I just remember that being really hard to write for some reason and I think, you know, the the ones that highlight the most are always the ones where you get to spend a lot of time in a place with a lot of people. So like Bray Hill Court, Katerina and a family, which was quite recent. That was really great. What was that? Katerina, the Ukrainian, and her family coming over. Yeah. That was really cool. And that was like, it was felt like nice to be part of a, I don't know, to meet someone who, I know it sounds odd, but to meet someone who'd really been there and to really have a sense of that uh, moment yourself was cool so I'd say those were a big moment in history that right that yeah. you've got to sort of see first hand um, my favourite of yours was the uh, was the pubs uh, in the Northern oh, Quarter yeah. the Northern Quarter pub crawl the pubs. Which, uh, which we should do again I wholeheartedly just because why not you definitely do <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you can read Jack's piece if you want to go into the Wigan Flashes yourself manchestermill.co.uk Jack congratulations on a year my friend we'll speak again thanks Jack Okay, Yoshi, uh, let's have a look at the week ahead. What's happening? What's happening is that I am finally going to spit out that piece I promised everyone about Oldham, um, which I was going to do over the weekend, but just couldn't quite get it right. But I've been spending quite a bit of time looking at the Oldham situation. Politics there, why Arusha lost, what are the underlying sort of dynamics in terms of racial resentments and that kind of thing. And uh, that's going to be coming out this weekend. So hopefully when people listen to this, it'll either be out or it'll be about to come out. And then what we've got next week is we've got a really interesting piece by a guy called Frank Owen. He's a Manchester journalist who covered all this sort of music stuff in the 70s and 80s. Then he went to America and he's been there for about 20 years, I think, working in New York. He's written for The Village Voice. He's written for lots of good American magazines, Rolling Stone, Playboy, that type of thing. He's just moved back to Manchester and he's writing his first mill piece. It's about an old nightclub called The Ranch, which is like a punky sort of nightclub. And that's coming out um, next week. So, yeah, we've got, we've got some good stuff coming up. Nice. Lovely. Low eye sense. Good. Um, and some recommendations for things to do and see uh, around Greater Manchester. What is on your radar? Well, something on my radar, which I didn't realise was about Grayson Manchester, but Jason Cowley, the editor of The New Statesman, he's got a new book out called Who Are We Now? Who Are We Now? I'm just reading it literally on my desk. 
Stories of Modern Britain. And there's a chapter in there about Gillian Duffy, uh, the woman who confronted Gordon Brown in, in Rochdale and who he called a bigoted woman, you know, on the, on the hot mic that wasn't supposed to be on Sky News mic. So uh, there's, a, there's a kind of greater Manchester link in that book and it's been well reviewed in a couple of places. So that's my rec. Lovely. And my shout is uh, Philosophy in Pubs, which is a really cool organisation that um, it does basically that, uh, Philosophy in Pubs. They put on uh, talks and meetings uh, in pubs around the place. There's a couple in, Sar- in Southport. Uh, they do them in Liverpool, over in Sheffield as well, I think. The Greater Manchester one tends to be around Salford, where I'm at, actually, uh, in Monton, uh, at the Bluebell Pub occasionally, and sometimes at Oats and Honey, which is a coffee shop on Monton Road. And the idea is really simple. Like, you just you gather together and they'll pose a philosophical question or a question about politics uh, or whatever else or as as the uh, next month's uh, one at the bluebell is this is on the 15th of june that it's just religion question mark so that'll be a really interesting conversation i'm sure actually uh, our um, our sister publication the tribune wrote about um philosophy and pubs and dan who's our editor there he went down there i think the, the theme that night was something like how do you define happiness or something like that so i think it's it's quite um you know, it's quite conceptual and it's, it's, it's quite related to everyday life, which sounds quite good. Yeah, very much so. Uh, they've got they've got one on the future of feminism as well before the end of uh, that's the first of June. Uh, Arts and Honey Coffee Shop, uh, really worth uh, digging out. Philosophy and pubs. You can just Google it, and it's the first thing that comes up, and you can have a look at their schedule of when they are in and around Greater Manchester in Salford. And not to for, not to, not to forget, Audio Always, who um, obviously the company who who we make this podcast in partnership with, they have a new scheme called Manchester Amplified. It's for the 10th anniversary of Audio Always. They're offering free podcast production support uh, to grassroots arts organisations across Greater Manchester. They want to work with individuals, organisations um, to reach new audiences via podcasting, which sounds really good, actually, because I met someone over the weekend who was saying she really wants to get her message out from her charity about domestic violence via, via a podcast. So this is the kind of thing that would be perfect. Um, you just need to go to audioalways.com forward slash Amplified extremely cool very very nice idea really worth taking advantage of um, okay that's it from us for this week on the Manchester Weekly we are back next week uh, you can get us in your podcast feed by hitting subscribe leave us a comment as well because it helps other people find the podcast and don't forget that you can find more deep dives into interesting stories what's happening in Greater Manchester and things to do out and about by getting the mill in your email inbox subscribe manchestermill.co.uk 